0: It's always a delight to be among the brethren. I'm thankful for an opportunity. I hope the Lord will give me something to say tonight. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to take my text tonight in the first verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Several times over the years after preaching the gospel in different places, I've been confronted with this passage of Scripture by someone who is uncomfortable with the concept of pure and sovereign grace, as if this passage wasn't about pure and sovereign grace. One cannot preach grace without, on occasion being charged with antinomianism. I'm always amazed that a person can think this verse, this one verse, is the standard for all others when just the opposite is true. Many years ago I was in a meeting in Louisville, Kentucky before Moose took the pastorate there. In that meeting a preacher, so-called, compared the life of a Christian to walking on a tightrope. And this ersatz theologian said that a tightrope walker needs a long pole for balance. So this preacher said that the balance pole was righteousness. And he went on further to say that on one end of the pole was the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and on the other end was our personal righteousness. His well-thought-out equation was that if our personal righteousness was not equal to that of Christ, that we would be out of balance and fall off the wire and suffer loss. After he had finished his gospel according to the Cirque du Soleil, he ended his tirade with a challenge to anyone who would presume to disagree with him by d double daring His words, anyone to preach a message from 2 Corinthians 7.1 because he believed 2 Corinthians 7.1 supported what he had just said. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. He firmly believed that this verse proved his Carney hawker sideshow definition of true righteousness before God. He could not account for the fact that the believer is decidedly unbalanced. Amen. Decidedly unbalanced. And cannot abide two of anything which you need to strike a balance. There is one way, one truth, one God... One Father, one faith, one baptism, one Lord overall, one life, and that is Jesus Christ. That is the singular and simplistic beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be confused about one thing. Can you? You might not believe it. You might not like it. You might not want to swallow it, but you are not confused about one thing. And this is what God says concerning the salvation of all His elect. Christ alone. Adam gained two things in the garden. Well, He had one thing to start with, and everything was fine when He had one thing. God looked at His creation and said, It's good. It's very good. Everything was good. Adam had it good. Had a beautiful wife. Had everything at His hands. Was the master of His domain. He was happy fellow. Then he sinned against God and he got the second thing. When he awoke out of his horrible session of disobedience, along with good, he had evil. And now he was balanced. He had a balanced life in ministry. And if you've got two things, that's what you've got too. You've got one thing good and one thing evil. The man who preached that night, his error was as all errors of legalism, was to divorce a spiritual admonition such as this text is from Christ and lay it at the door of the great bastion of human responsibility, capability, and merit. Since all the Word of God is about Christ, then this passage is about Christ. We don't have to ask that question. That's just a fact. Every admonition... In this book that addresses faith is not centered in faith. It's centered in Christ. We are commanded to forgive each other. How? As Christ has forgiven us. We are commanded to love one another. How? As Christ has loved us. We are commanded to give because God has given us Christ and all things with Him. We are commanded to pray without ceasing because our Lord ever liveth to make intercession for us. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will agree that there is a weakness in the translator's placement of this verse by putting it as a new paragraph and a new chapter. Perhaps they did so to connect it with the verse that follows in verse 2 when Paul said, "...receive us, we have wronged no man." We have corrupted no man and have defrauded no man. So maybe that's why when they read this about perfecting holiness, they said, well, maybe that's what it means. But the Bible, remember this, is a light to God's people, but it is a snare to those who don't know Him. It's spoken in a way that men will wrongly interpret it naturally (laughs) and can only rightly see it spiritually. This Bible is a trap for those who don't know Christ. It's a trap for religionists. There's so much in this book that natural religion can read wrong rightly. (laughs) And they often do. They often do. These words that Paul said, he wronged no man, that he uh, corrupted no man, that he defrauded no man, these are gospel imperatives. We are told to, owe man, not anything, but to love one another. And love worketh no ill to his neighbor. That's the clear definition of Scripture concerning these gospel imperatives of defrauding no one and corrupting no one. Character and conduct do matter. They just don't count. (laughs) They do matter. They just don't count. Because they... They matter because they are a revelation of an understanding of how our Lord treated us. However, the first two words of verse seven connect it with the previous verses, not with what follows. These words address the promises declared in the last few verses of chapter six. Whatever the meaning of the remainder of verse 1 is, is inextricably bonded and based on and centered in the fact that those who are spoken of have something. Those who are spoken to have something. They're not looking to get something. They're not looking to gain something. They already have something. They have the promises of God. Having therefore these promises these promises and they possess and therefore believe the aforementioned promises and that's in the right order they have they possess and they believe <laughs> that's why you believe the promises is because you have the promises they are not looking to gain or to progress in any way shape or form concerning the promises they already have them having therefore these Promises. They have something. They're possessors of something. Now the Word of God always connects promise to Jesus Christ and the salvation that He accomplished on Calvary's tree. All the promises of God, all of them, no matter what they are from Genesis to Revelation, all the promises of God are yea and they are amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called in Galatians, heirs of the promise or heirs of promise. It follows, then, that the remaining words of admonition here are not accomplished in the flesh, but rather in the Spirit through believing the promise of God. That's how these things are accomplished. Whatever this is talking about, the basis for them, the basis for perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, the manner in which it is accomplished is the fact that we have the promises. We have the promises. Our text has to do with and must be viewed in light of the context in which it's written lest we find ourselves sucked into that airless vacuum of ligamentism on a tight wire with a pole without a net because that's where you're going to end up. Look at chapter 6 and verse 14. What are the promises spoken of? What what does this relate to? What has perfecting holiness mean. Verse 14 says, "...Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel?" Now our Lord has made some clear and absolute distinctions. You can read this over in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Especially during the time when our Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and began to lead them toward the Promised Land. Over and over again, He says, when you get there, you don't mix with any religion. You don't worship any strange God. But then in De- Deuteronomy 31, He says, here's what you're going to do when you get into the Promised Land. You're going to mix with every religion there. Every one of them. And then He gave that great chapter 32 of Deuteronomy as a song of remembrance for His people. That when they finally do realize by His grace that they are worshiping idols, to recall all the things that He did for them in chapter 32. Our Lord forbids, absolutely, unequivocally, forbids mixing grace with works. He forbids mixing grace with free will. He forbids mixing grace with law. There is never any time ever where the believer goes to the law for anything. He's been freed from the law. Freed from the law. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Ye are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be My people. First promise. Wherefore come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Promise. I will be your father. Ye shall be My sons and My daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Promise. Having Therefore, these promises, (laughs) all these promises, we perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. We have these promises. Cleansing, the filthiness of the spirit and the flesh is spoken of in the first verse of chapter 7. But cleansing can never be attributed and never is attributed to the power of the will of the flesh. Nowhere in Scripture. The very words of the passage declares that we are, we are to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and the Spirit. We are not admonished to go to the flesh to clean, cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of it. That would be oxymoronic, wouldn't it? Cleanse yourself from the flesh by going to the flesh to cleanse yourself from the flesh. That's stupid, isn't it? Doesn't make any sense at all. Cleansing is not a thing that we can do at all. Job said, I wash my hands with snow water. That's pretty clean water. Make them never so white. And God will plunge me into a ditch and make my own clothes, my own righteousness abhor me. Can anyone bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Not one. Cleansing is God's work from beginning to end. When we confess our sins, He's just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God's Word. Everywhere in Scripture that the children of God seek cleansing, they do so at the door of mercy. They seek cleansing at the fountain filled with blood. And the fact that their cry is, Cleanse me, Lord, and I will be cleansed. I will be clean declares that they know that cleansing is not something that is possible in their own power and ability. Cleansing was accomplished, has been accomplished. That's why God is just to forgive you. Forgiveness is not really, it's about you. How does God forgive our sins? He forgives them because you don't see them. we the ones who see our sins. we the ones who ask for forgiveness. We confess our sins and He forgives us because He's what? Just. How can He be just to forgive us our sins? Because He's already forgiven us our sins in Jesus Christ by His blood. That's where sins were cleansed on the tree that our Lord hung on, on Calvary. That's where they were all taken care of. Paul declared that fact throughout Corinthians that we were cleansed by the blood. Cleansing is spiritual. The flesh is neither quickened nor renewed ever, ever. And it cannot be. And it can't be anything other than what it is. It is what it is. And the flesh is always flesh. Never get better. Never get nicer. Never get nicer. You can put a bowl in that pig if you want to, but it's still going to be a pig. It's still going to be a pig. Flesh is flesh and always will be. Flesh is carnal. It is carnality. It is sensual. It is always earthly-minded. Always bound to this realm of the universe. And it's always contrary to the Spirit. Always. The groaning of the Spirit of the child of God is to be finally released from the influence and death of the flesh. Paul said, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? What was he talking about? In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. To apply to the flesh for perfection of holiness is a kind of sick, perverse necrophilia. It's as absurd as as going to the graveyard to find life. That's what you're doing. This admonition spoken of here in our text has to do with spiritual life. Spiritual life. There's only one way that our members, which are upon the face of the earth, can be mortified. Only one way. This mortification is certainly not within the purview of our members. How do you mortify the deeds of the flesh? Go to the flesh. (laughs) Do something. How do you mortify the deeds of the flesh? You do them by looking at Jesus Christ. You certainly don't look upon the things of the earth. In the context when I, which Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh, it follows fast on the heels of him beginning that chapter by saying, set your affection on things above and not on things upon the earth. So it has nothing to do with the flesh. Where are you? Where are you? Physically, where are you? You're on the earth. Can't look there then, because that's a thing that is upon the earth. One does not apply to the disease, embrace the disease, revisit the disease, or become reinfected in order to cure the disease. (laughs) That's just stupid, isn't it? Now this may seem almost mystical, maybe even ethereal, but the cleansing of the flesh is done in a singular manner. We used to sing an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the sight of His glory and grace. This in a nutshell is the answer. The believer looks to Christ. He looks for the appearing of Christ. The believer will be looking for Him because the believer has set his affection on Him and not on things on the earth. And with affection on things above, the natural consequence is that the things on the earth are not attended to. Right? That makes sense? If you're looking yonder, you're not looking here. If you're looking up, you're not looking down. That makes sense? If you're looking at Christ, you're not looking at yourself. And if you're looking at yourself, you're not looking at Christ. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and man and you're going to hate the one and love the other. So the way to mortify the deeds of the flesh is to not look at the flesh. It's to look at Christ. And the flesh will be starved for attention. (laughs) That's right. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. With affection on things above. Things of earth are not attended to. This principle is the principle of spiritual life. The members on the earth are mortified by looking to Christ. Our problem is we take our eyes off Christ. But you know when you see Him, like last night, I can tell you last night, those fellas poured a mighty fine heavenly cordial last night. And I drank deep, got drunk as a skunk on the front pew. For a while, for a couple of hours, I had no troubles. I had no worries. Why? I saw Christ. Everything's fine when you see Him. I didn't worry about the flesh. I wasn't trying to be holy. I wasn't trying to be spiritual. (laughs) I'd look into Christ. That's the answer. Too simple? Yeah. Too simple. Religion. Ever about making the old man better and applying to the flesh to do so will never be able to grasp that mortification of our members on the earth is accomplished with a look. A look. Promise. Having these promises. The promises suggest hope, doesn't it? And we do not hope in our flesh or in anything we can see for a hope that is seen is not a hope. Isn't that right? Not a hope. We look on things that are not seen, it says. How you do that? <laughs> look into Christ. That's how you do it. See things that you can't see. What you see is going to pass away. You know what controls this world? Things you can't see. How does gravity work? Real well. You can't see it. God is invisible. He's the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. As mysterious and wonderful and as unlikely as it seems, the only way that the flesh is subdued is with a look at Christ. It is starved for affection because the believer has invested his affection on things above and not on things of the earth. Looking unto Jesus, the author, and finisher of our faith. This is the only way that we deal with the sin that so easily besets us. <laughs> it's the only way it's done. Holiness. You know, holiness is never attributed to the power of the will of the flesh. Holiness is the work of God too. Holiness is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. What ha- holiness have we but Christ? All our righteousness, according to Scripture, is as filthy rags. We do all fade as a leaf. Our righteousness needs to be atoned for. Our righteousness needs the blood of Christ to wash it. Our righteousness needs to be put away. needs to be put away altogether. Christ is our holiness. God has made Him to be unto us. Wisdom, righteousness, holiness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is my holiness. He's my holiness. Holiness is a state of being. So we can know this when it's talking about our sanctification in Christ. This word holiness don't have anything to do with that in the sense that it is perfected. It's a different holiness we're talking about here, isn't it? Because in Christ we're holy. We're holy. How holy are we? Holy as we can be. <laughs> That's how holy we can be. Never in Scripture is a superlative placed on the word holy except twice. Superlative EST, ER, added to the end of a word. Once, speaking about the most holy place, it's called the holiest of all. The other time is holier, when men said, We are holier than thou. And God said, That smoke in my nose burns my eyes. Men have talked that way. You're as holy as you're ever going to be. What about getting to heaven? You'll still be that holy. What about when we lay off this flesh? You won't be holier. You just be as holy as you are. Because your holiness is not your own. Your holiness is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has perfected us by His offering. By His singular offering, He has perfected forever them that are holy, them that are sanctified, them that are separated unto Almighty God. Fearing God. It says, perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Fearing God is the work of God also. It is said of men by nature that they do not fear God. They don't love God. They don't worship God. They don't care about God. They don't want anything to do with God. If you fear God, it's because God has put His fear in your heart. He said, I will give them one mind and one heart, and they shall fear Me. That means to love Him and reverence Him and worship Him. Fear of God for the believer is reverence for His holiness and His perfection. Fear of God has to do with worshiping God. worshiping, Loving God. Honoring God. And I know that those who hold that our text is a treatise on progressive sanctification use the fear card as if this refers to punishment or loss. They themselves, however, openly avow that they will never attain to perfection, so they live in a constant slavish fear of the wrath of God falling on them. That's why they're so blame miserable. You never get a smile on their face. I was down in Louisiana preaching one time, and I was taken to this museum that had... I believe it was Frederick Remington's statues that he had made. That guy that did all those horses and things like that. And he had made a statue of a Puritan. I never (laughs) forget that. And this guy had on them buckled shoes, you know, and on a black coat and a black suit and a black shirt and a black hat pulled down. He had a Bible tucked right there. And he was walking in a gate. His robes were flowing behind him. I looked at guys scared me to death. No kidding. I thought, how did people live that way? How do people live that way? Angry, fearful, all the time worried that God's gonna walk up and thump them on the head. And so mad at you because you don't live like that. It's jealousy, folks. They can't stand the thought of somebody being free. They fear liberty as much as we fear bondage. Can't stand it. The believer operates from an entirely different position. You see, the believer has promises. Promises from Almighty God. The believer has his God dwelling in him by his Spirit, living in him. And the believer does what he does not to gain anything. He does what he does not out of fear of loss or censure, but in reverence of what has been accomplished for and in him by God Almighty. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, then plainly has to do with believing the promises of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, let's look at our text. It says that's the introduction. Yeah, but my message ain't very long. Let's look at our text again. The admonition. It says this: Having therefore the promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This admonition is to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit. And this word filthiness is an interesting word. It means an action by which anything is defiled. An action by which anything is defiled or doing something that defiles you. Now we know from the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that defilement does not come from without, but from within. Now, right? You can't take anything to your body that's going to defile you. Might make you sick, might kill you, it won't defile you. What defiles you comes from your heart. There's where murderers are. Thieves. Wicked looks, vileness, uncleanness, corruption. All that's in your heart. Desperately wicked place. But this passage is not a contradiction of God's words. God don't have any contradiction in His words. This defilement, this filthiness, comes from a root word that means to pollute or stain. A thing is stained by coming in contact with something of a polluting nature or a staining nature. Something nasty. Something nasty. This nasty filthiness that is spoken of here has to do with contact or proximity or association with something and something that gets on you. We'd say it like this. Lay down with dogs... Wake up with fleas. Such language is not foreign to the Gospel. Our Lord said of the Pharisees, Leave them alone. You mess with them, they'll ruin you. That's what He said. Get around them, they'll ruin you. Paul said that to the Galatians. Don't mess with those Judaizers. They'll taint you. They'll mess you up. He didn't say you'd lose salvation. He said, but they'll ruin you. They'll ruin you. The believer's not to be stained by association with sinners like himself. That's all the only kind of people we meet. That don't stain us being associated with sinners. Our Lord associated with sinners. In fact, it's the only kind of people He ever associated with was with sinners. We are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature, and our Lord set the example for associations, being the friend of sinners and publicans. The believer is, however, stained and often polluted. He gets his feet dirty in association with false, legalistic, idolatrous. Religion. The epistles of Galatians and Colossians were written in warning against that very thing. And we have examples of that stain in the actions of Peter, James, and Barnabas and Antioch. They got stained. They got nasty. What did they do? They changed tables at a church social. These Gentiles who had received the gospel and been stupid enough to believe that they were saved without even ever knowing about the law. These were Gentiles. They didn't have the Jewish law. They were saved with no knowledge that a law was. And yet here come Judaizers in and said, Fellas, y'all gonna to have to go back to the law. And they kind of separated at the church table, and the really holy guy said over oh, here. And these old pagan Gentiles said over no, here. And the Judaizers started talking to Peter James and John Barnabas and said, You know, y'all not associate with them kind of people. You know, they say they believe the Gospel. They say they've been saved by grace. He said, but you know, you've got to keep the law. You, can't, you just can't throw that stuff away. You can't do away with it altogether. Christ did. He put it away. What 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 does the law do? What it's always done? Convict you. Tell you what your sentence is. Set the date. <laughs> you're going to the gas chamber. Why? Because you're a sinner. The law was what started It was the transgression that came and then the law came to define it as transgression. The law came after the transgression. That's how the law serves. It came because of the transgression. Where there is no law, there is no imputation of sin. That's clear in Scripture. Sin is imputed where the law is. And that's what the law will always do. It was never intended to make a man righteous or give him life or make him feel good about himself. Or to be hung on the courtrooms of America. That's not what it's designed to be done. The law says this you're on death row. You've got the cap, they shaved your head, they put that metal cap on your head, put the sponge underneath, and it strapped you down. They're getting ready to throw the switch, you're going to be electrocuted and die. And the law comes up to you and says, Let me tell you why this is happening to you. And it reads your sentence. It reads your crimes. And it says, You're justly condemned, now you die. And that's what the law always says. Always oh, say, "You want to deal with that? <laughs> Go ahead and deal with your own." Time. I ain't messing with. You. I ain't messing with. You. The law is not for the righteous man. It's not, not for the righteous man. Cleansing ourselves from what nasty, polluting, corrupting, false religion. We are to cleanse ourselves from that which pollutes us, which would spot our garment. And this cleansing has to do with the flesh. And the Spirit, that's what it says, cleanse the flesh and the Spirit. Now, this does not refer to the old man and the new man, or the Spirit and the flesh that are always contrary to one another, or the war that goes on in our members to bring every consideration into the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is quite simply, since it has to do with filthy contact, our body (laughs) and our mind. We ought to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of our bodies and our minds by keeping ourselves from that which would stain us. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, our members as instruments of righteousness, and mind not the things of the flesh, and look not on the things of this earth. Paul declares, This is the perfecting of holiness in the fear of the Lord. This word perfecting means to finish. Finish it. Put an end to it. Be done with it. Bring it to an end. And the word holiness finds its primary meaning in separation, which our Lord said, actually, when He says, Come out of them and be what? Separate. Separate. So that night, if I had had this message, I'd have been t- able to tell that fellow, I can't have anything more to do with you. You and your pole and your balance. You're a stain. You're nasty. You're corrupting. We are not to join hands with those who oppose Christ and His gospel. I'm not saying being unkind. You know me better than that. And we all be kind to folks. We don't hold hands with those who oppose Christ and His gospel. We are not to mind the things that they espouse as necessary for holiness before God. The truth of the matter is that in order to perfect holiness, we must reject the holiness that they espouse. Their religion is a polluting stain that we are to neither sidle up to or entertain in our minds. We are not to be yoke fellows with them, fellowship with them, have communion with them, be in concord or agree with them. We don't separate from them by paying attention to them. (laughs) Paul wouldn't give them An hour of His time, He said. We separate from them by being separated to something else. That's how we separate from them. Don't try to separate yourself. Don't try to separate yourself. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Paul says we are separated unto the Gospel. (laughs) Holiness. What is perfecting holiness? Put an end to this mixture. Put an end to association and giving credence and holding hands with, and fellowshipping with, and being in concord with, or agreement with, anything, anything, that adds anything to the salvation that God wrought, other than Jesus Christ, other than Jesus Christ. I believe that's what Paul was teaching here when he said, having these promises, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Well, okay then.